Matthew chapter 16 this morning, verse 21. We're now in week five on our series, Disciples Making Disciples. We've got one more message to go next week on prayer. To this point, we've looked at the Son of Man's kingdom and his own mission to seek and save the lost. Uh, we then saw over the next three weeks our own role, uh, what our own role looks like in terms of evangelism and the local church and then teaching one another, uh, all of which are bound up with this charge that Jesus gives at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, go and make disciples of all nations. But embedded within a, all of our previous messages has been a theme I want to make more explicit today, and that theme is the cost of discipleship. In particular, I want to look at what it means to take up our cross. Without taking up our cross, not only would we not be making followers of Jesus, but we wouldn't be disciples of Jesus, period, without, without this cross-bearing Fundamental to being a follower of Jesus is taking up the cross with Jesus. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. This will be our focus today. And I want to do this uh, by reading first from Matthew 16. And then as we go along, we'll pick a few other places in the New Testament uh, to spell out the cost of discipleship and especially what it means to take up our cross. But, but I want to start here because what we see is that long before Jesus ever said, go and make disciples, he said, he, he explained to the disciples what the cost of discipleship is, what it looks like. It looks like a cross. So I'll begin reading in verse 21. He says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done." Father in heaven, would you give us grace this morning as we look at your word? And would you give us the strength 
to hear hard things, the humility to embrace them and repent, and the power to then live and walk in them throughout all of our days. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So before Jesus commands the disciples, go and make disciples, he explains the cost of discipleship here in chapter 16. And verse 24 summarizes the cost of discipleship quite well. And in some sense gives us two sides. If we had a discipleship coin, these would be two sides to this cost of discipleship. Following Jesus involves denying yourself. We might call that the the negative side. And following Jesus involves taking up your cross. We might call that the positive side. Both are necessary to following Jesus and both are costly. We'll we'll spend the bulk of our time on taking up our cross. But I want to give a few minutes to this, this negative side of denying ourselves. I think it'll bring further clarity to what it means to actually take up our cross And it'll also keep us from evaluating our Christian life based simply on what we're not doing anymore. So to begin, what does Jesus mean when he says that you must deny yourself? I think the context is rather helpful for us here. Jesus rebukes Peter in verse 23 saying, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Simply put, denying yourself is denying that part of you that rejects God's ways for man's ways. It's renouncing our rebel ways. It's turning away from building our own kingdom and setting our mind instead on Christ's kingdom. We see this come out in other places as well. For example, a disciple earlier earlier comes to Jesus and he comes as if following Jesus is his new career path. And so he starts setting the conditions for this new career path. I will follow you, Lord, but... First, let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Or then again, in Matthew 19, we we get this rich young man that comes to Jesus. He, He wants to know what deed he must do to gain eternal life. And after telling Jesus what a good law keeper he is, Jesus says, Okay, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then you come and you follow me. And when the young man heard this, he walks away from Jesus, very sorrowful, for he had many possessions. What we see in these two instances is that you can't live with one foot in your own kingdom and one foot in Jesus' kingdom. It's not possible to enter Christ's kingdom while still clutching to your own. It's not possible to say, I'll follow you, but only on these conditions. Or like Peter to say, I'll follow you, but not if you're going there. Denying yourself is renouncing the sinful agenda to square your life with Christ's agenda. Bonhoeffer, uh, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, also said, Only the man who is dead to his own will can truly follow Christ. 
Other places in the New Testament, they call this this self-denial the putting off of the old self, the old man. It's that part of you that wants to have the love affair with the world. That's the self that we must deny. That's the life we must hate. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of anything that we've just covered. But how many of us stop the Christian life there? We reduce the Christian life to what we're not doing anymore. What sins are not prevalent anymore. What commands we're not breaking anymore. And praise God, we should give thanks every time He gives us the grace to deny ourselves in these ways. But we cannot reduce the Christian life simply to avoiding badness. John Piper brings out in his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life. He said, Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there is no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, no fraud, just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and PG-13 movies in the evening and lots of fun stuff on the weekend, woven around church mostly. This is the life for millions of people, wasted life. We were created for more, far more. And that far more that Piper is bringing out in his book is talking about, what he's talking about in his book is gaining more of Jesus, more of who he is, more of the reward he is, more of the joy that is found in Jesus by taking up the cross. You see, I haven't said anything positive about the cost of discipleship yet which is the taking up your cross side. We've only discussed denying yourself. So we've got to check ourselves right here to make sure that we're not reducing the cross to mere sin management. Because that's not the cross. Make sure that you're not reducing the cross to self-denial only to escape the radical call to suffering that the cross actually is. You see, we need to be warned by Jesus' rebuke of Peter. If we get the way of the cross wrong, we get Jesus wrong. And if we get Jesus wrong, then our lives will serve the agenda of Satan who is sure to perish in the end. Peter tried to keep Jesus from taking up his cross, and Jesus rebuked him. You're a hindrance. Get behind me, Satan. Any attempt to get around a crucified life is satanic to the core, and sometimes that happens suddenly, subtly when we live by only half the truth. Deny yourself. The whole truth is deny yourself and take up your cross. Yes, we must deny ourselves, but we must also take up our cross. So let's move now to the positive side, to this cost of discipleship, actually taking up the cross. What does Jesus mean by taking up your cross? Now, I'm not going to cover all we could about taking up your cross, but I'm hoping it at least hits some of the main 
things that Jesus has in mind here. Again, the, the context is helpful because in it at least three aspects stand out to Jesus' call to take up our cross. And the first aspect is this single-minded obedience to Jesus. Single-minded obedience to Jesus. Single-minded obedience characterized the cross that Jesus himself uh, was called to bear. In verse 21, he says it this way. He says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. There's no option here for him. He must do it. And verse 23 says that this is the will of God, which is what Peter didn't want. So this is the will of Jesus' Father, and, 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 and Jesus is being obedient to it. Of course, Jesus' obedience then uh, will play out later in other places as the gospel moves on. And we see it such as in his prayer in Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see this single-minded obedience to the Father as Jesus is taking up his cross. When Jesus calls us to take up our cross, he's calling us to this same single-minded obedience that we see in his cross-bearing. It's a call for our constant prayer to be, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. And it can't be otherwise. I mean, we're, we're talking about the Christ here. Uh, he has power over death. He will rise his from the dead on the third day, our text tells us. And even the gates of Hades can't stop him. He holds the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He unfolds the future with his death, resurrection, and return. He is the Son of Man wrapped in his Father's glory. Angels do his bidding on the last day, and, and he possesses authority to judge every person according to what he has done. When he says, take up your cross... He's calling us to obey Him at all costs. There's no other king worthy of our absolute devotion. And we feel the challenge of this single-minded obedience when He starts calling people to follow Him. For example, Peter and Andrew are right in the middle of their jobs as fishermen. And James and John are helping their dad with, with the fishing boat and the family business here. And Jesus says to all of them, Follow me. And it says immediately they left their nets, they left their boat, and they left their father, and they followed Jesus. This is a picture of single-minded obedience. Midday, I don't know where the paycheck is coming from next week if I do this, but Christ told me to, so I'm going to type of obedience. Later on, another disciple comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus responds, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Even the closest family ties can't trump submission to Jesus. Obedience is without reservations. Along with this theme, you know, we see Jesus at one point, the disciples are distressed at sea because the wind and the waves are terrible. And Jesus turns and rebukes the winds and the waves. And what is their question? Who is this man that commands the winds and the waves? And they obey him. 
And the point is, if the winds and waves obey him, what about you? What about you? So we see this single-minded obedience is part of this cross-bearing. But that obedience will then lead us to a second aspect of taking up our cross, namely suffering in the path of love. Suffering or sacrifice, self-sacrifice in the path of love. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says that he will suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and then he will be killed. So when he says, just a couple verses later, take up your cross, we know what he's got in mind. Suffering. Sacrifice. But all this suffering and even death is part of giving up his life for the church that he mentions back in verse 18, that he's going to build his church. So he's not just suffering for suffering's sake. He's suffering to save others. He's suffering to love his people. When Jesus calls us then to take up our cross, he calls us to walk that same path of sacrificial love that we see that he walked. That path will include suffering for the sake of others, that they might know God through Christ. Now, we need to be clear here. Our suffering for the sake of others is different from Jesus' suffering. We don't suffer to atone for people's sins. Only Jesus' suffering and death can atone for our sins. He alone is God's one and only Son. He alone humbled Himself to take on our humanity. He alone is without sin. He alone drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. And He alone can give us an alien righteousness, a righteousness that we can be robed in to stand before God on Judgment Day without the fear of hell. Only He can do that. Not a single one of us can replicate Jesus' atoning death. Rather, Jesus' atoning death is what liberates us from our sinful ways that old self would deny and then motivates us to to imitate His love. So his atoning death liberates us and then motivates us to imitate his love. And the nature of his love was like this. He laid down his life for our eternal good with God. 1 John 3.16 says that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he means for our benefit, for our benefit with, with God. The Bible says that we are then to follow in Jesus' steps. Christians are to lay down their lives for the eternal good of others in God. And that only comes with suffering and self-sacrifice. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is cross-bearing. Jesus and the apostles assume the normal lifestyle of all Christians includes suffering in the path of love. 
The only church the New Testament knows is a suffering church because there's a cross that created that church. When we live this way, we authenticate our lives, we, we authenticate with our lives the message of Christ's love that we preach to others. We authenticate with our lives the message of Christ's love that we preach to others. That's, that's what happens when we take up our cross. This is much of what behi- what's behind uh, Paul's words. For example, in Colossians 1.24, uh, he writes, I rejoice. This is, this is a remarkable statement by Paul here. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So Paul, is, Paul knows this cross-bearing for others, this suffering in the path of love. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? If we know his death is truly a saving death, it's totally sufficient to forgive the sins of anybody who believes. What could Paul mean that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could be lacking? What is lacking is the visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to the world. And God intends for that visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to be filled up through the afflictions of His own people. That's you and me. As we love others, and we lay down our lives for them, and we suffer to see them come to know Jesus, we're filling up the afflictions of Christ. We're we're making the visible, uh, we're making Christ's love for the world visible to others who weren't present at the cross. Which means nothing about our lives belongs to us. Even our own bodies are set apart for God to do with them as He sees fit in helping the world to see His love in Jesus Christ more clearly. Which means that it's impossible to follow Jesus without laying your life down for other people. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger cross-bearing. Cross-bearing involves people in your life that you're laying your life down for. Cross-bearing necessarily means you're dying to give life to others. You're losing your life to spend it on others for the glory of God. One other aspect we'll cover today in in, in taking up our cross. Taking up our cross will also mean shameful rejection from the world. Shameful rejection from the world. This is, this is not something we often consider because of the, the way our culture over time has sort of candy-coated the cross. The cross wasn't a piece of jewelry you wore or a bumper sticker or wall decor that let everybody who entered your house know that you had some familiarity with Christianity. The cross meant that you were the wall decor. 
It was an instrument of torture and public shame. Think of electric chair. Think of sword from ISIS. Think of a noose around your neck. That is the cross Jesus calls us to take up in Matthew 16. Single-minded obedience to Jesus and suffering in the path of love will take you here. Your life will look so foreign to the world because it doesn't fit its value system and they will hate you and shame you for it. They will revile you, Matthew 5.11 says, and utter all kinds of evil things about you falsely on Jesus' account. They're not reviling you because you're angry. They're reviling you because you're laying down your life for them. Taking up the cross is not just suffering from what's common to this mortal life. It's not just suffering as the result of our natural existence in a fallen world. It's not just ordinary calamity and hardship with with people and circumstances that all people suffer, whether they're Christian or not. Taking up the cross means suffering, rejection, and shame wherever obedience to Christ and love for others demands it. Jesus says in Mark 8, 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. That's a hard word, folks, because he's telling them this right before he goes and is hung up naked and bleeding. This is a call to stand there, to hang there with him. Without shame. That's hard because we're so vulnerable to feeling ashamed of the cross. We don't like shameful rejection. We like glory. We like glory. We like to be made much of. We don't want to be hung up like this. We want discipleship to be more comfortable than shame. We don't like the awkward stares from our coworkers when we take a stand for Jesus on, on an issue. We don't want to make the family get-togethers uncomfortable for the sake of the truth. It's not easy when the neighbors breed hatred for you because we agreed with Jesus' words over their own. Well, let's try a different example in the way that bearing this shameful rejection comes about. We fear what people might think of us if we associate with certain people. You remember the prostitute that crashed the Pharisees' little party in Luke 7? Jesus is reclining at the table with the Pharisees and in comes this woman from the city. 
And she starts kissing his feet and washing his feet with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair and anointing him with ointment. And the Pharisees are all appalled at Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In their eyes, their self-righteous eyes, what he is allowing is shameful. And then Jesus rebukes them in saying they, they don't understand a thing about his forgiveness, but she does. You see, sexual immorality is shameful. But that's what Jesus carried to the cross for this woman. And he bore her shame on the cross that she might be forgiven and then given new wedding clothes on the last day. Are you willing to stand with Jesus and all the other prostitutes he forgives, or will you cower to the Pharisee, whether inside you or whether looking at you, saying, how dare she eat with her? You see, bearing the shame of the cross may not always look like bleeding. It may also look like eating with people that others despise. When Pharisees wag their heads at you for reclining at the table with the same-sex couple across the street, will you bear the shame with Jesus? How could we not? He bore our shamefulness on the cross. We were all despicable sinners. And how shameful it would be to have all our sins scrolling down the PowerPoint right now. But Jesus became shameful to wipe our sins clean. And now he calls us to identify with the shame bound up with his cross. And that's going to mean loving people that others are going to snub their nose at. Why? Why do we do this? Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Single-minded obedience to Jesus, suffering in the path of love, shameful rejection from the world, whether that world looks licentious or self-righteous. These are aspects of what it means to take up our cross. And when we embrace them, it shakes up our lives in some radical ways. If you're still living like you would have lived anyway without Jesus, you need to consider whether you're making the cross into something other than what it actually is. Some of the most common things that get shaken up in the Gospels as you read the Gospels are people, possessions, and vocations. Taking up your cross transforms your relationship to people, to your possessions, and to your vocation. about your relationship to people? Matthew 10 tells us that taking up your cross may mean that your family members hate you. Jesus says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law 
and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Some of you have first-hand experience with this one. Jesus goes on to say, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So he's talking about this, he's talking about cross-bearing here when he's talking about loving father or mother uh, more than him and not being worthy therefore to follows. So the cross affects how you relate even to your immediate family members. We see the same thing just worded a little differently in Luke chapter 14 verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You will have to make decisions in following Jesus that the world will call hatred for your family. A most recent example of this is very personal to us, actually. When uh, Max and Laura had to make the decision to leave for uh, South Asia. If you remember, Max's dad was dying of cancer at the time he needed to leave, and he had to make the agonizing decision whether to go. His dad was being cared for, of course, but how do you choose to go if you're likely never to see your daddy again on earth? Max loved Jesus more. What was even sweeter about this situation, though, is that Max's dad loved Jesus more as well. He told Max to go. That looks crazy to the world. Looks hateful. But both Max and his daddy knew this is love. Jesus has his eyes on the nations and winning them to himself. Oh, that the cross would lead us into these kinds of choices. It will lead us into hard choices with some of the dearest people we share life with on this earth. The cross may call us to leave those we'd rather not leave. It may call us to dissociate ourselves from professing believers who continue in sin. It may call us not to go to that wedding even though we were invited by family members. It may call us to stand on the truth when everybody else wants to compromise. The cross affects our relationship to people. Or how about the relationship we have to our possessions? We talked about the rich young ruler, uh, the rich young man earlier in Matthew 19. He was... He was so attached to his possessions that Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give to the poor. And then have treasure in heaven and come follow Christ. In this case, the riches of this world were keeping this man from following Christ. He had what Paul calls the love of money. So Jesus is telling, them, basically telling him, cut him off. Get rid of him. To have me. But then in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, we, we, Jesus 
broadens the effects of his cross a bit more. He gives us the kind of mind we must have toward all of our possessions. He says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, that may not mean you sell everything. But it will mean that you steward everything with open hands. You recognize that it's not yours to decide what you want to do with it, from the smallest of trinkets and grocery lists to something as big as your house. It's not yours. It's all at Jesus' disposal for his kingdom. In fact, if it's not being used to his kingdom advance, or to make disciples, or to love your neighbor, you might ask why you're clinging on to it. Why you want it so bad. Or, how what you do have can be used to serve others. That's the question the cross teaches us to ask. The cross does not teach us to ask questions like, can I have this and still be a Christian? The cross asks us, How will this serve Christ's kingdom to the glory of God? How will this win other people to Christ? That's the kinds of questions the cross teaches us to ask. We see this playing out rather helpfully in the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Uh, Paul commends the sister Phoebe because she apparently used her wealth to serve and bless others with it. It says she was a patron of many. You've got to be rich to be a patron of many. Phoebe knew what her wealth was to be used for. Priscilla and Aquila didn't sell their house. They actually kept that house and it was, must have been large enough because the church was meeting in it regularly. So there's different ways to use our possessions or get rid of them. The point is that when we take up our cross, our possessions now serve Christ instead of our own appetites. We even see this example of uh, when, when Paul's going around. We, we talked about this before. Paul going around taking up the collection for the Jerusalem, to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And, and, and he comes to the Corinthians and he's inviting them to give their money to this collection. And he grounds it right in the cross. You yourselves know that he who was rich became poor for your sake, that you, that you might become rich. And that informs, so the cross is there, informing how they're to get their, give their money. And then we have how the cross may affect our vocations, our vocations. Clearly, when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, they left their vocations altogether. They left their nets. Matthew leaves his tax booth. So it could be that when Jesus tells you, take up your cross and follow me, he's calling you to drop what you're doing right now for something else. 
There's no question that is the case if you're working in a context right now where you cannot obey Jesus and do what you do. That is to say your job situation is asking you to do things that are contrary to the will of Christ. If that's you, you need to quit and come to the church for help and prayer till you find a different job. But not many of you are in that place. And you'll need more help with discerning whether changing your vocation is the right thing to do for Jesus' sake. It's true that some cling to their jobs for security. They vie for that higher position to serve their own kingdom agenda. They fear letting go of that hefty paycheck every week when Jesus is telling them to give it up, lay it all down, and go to the nations. People like this may need encouragement to change vocations, to do what Christ is is calling them to do. But it's just as true that others want out of their jobs simply because they don't want to follow Jesus in their jobs. Some people aren't thankful for their job, and so they grow bitter against it. Or others don't find contentment in Christ throughout their workday, and they think a different vocation will satisfy them when it won't, no matter what kind of Christian veneer you put on it. In these cases, it may not be the vocation that needs to change, but the person in it. Not everybody should leave their current vocation in order to follow Jesus. Taking up your cross may simply transform the way you think about your current vocation and how you serve others within it. Jesus didn't tell everybody to give up their vocations to travel with him. He told one fella, he cast this demon out of this guy, and this guy begs him, hey, I want to go with you. And he says, no, return to your home and you declare how much God has done for you. I got a different task for you than Matthew, James, and the others. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, again, a great read, but he also brings out the point, the disciples left their nets, but Martin Luther left the monastery. Both of them in order to follow Jesus. In order to take up the cross. So how do you decide which one is you? Well, again, God has not only given you His Word, but He has also given you a church family to help you discern your vocation. Talk to each other. Find mature believers and, and, and get their input. Pray and fast with one another about it. And, and just like God did with the early church, He will do again with this church and giving you discernment. All right. That's a lot to take in. And hardly any of it is very light to consider. But we don't serve a God who gives us these demands without also giving the grace to obey Him. And you need to know that if you're a believer in Christ today, all the grace that you need to embrace this cost of discipleship was secured when Jesus took up his cross for you. And here's what I mean you can deny yourself 
You can, you can say no to that old self because by faith you already stand crucified with Jesus. When he died, you died. And you made that known to everybody when you entered the waters of baptism. That means your old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6.6 6. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Romans 6.14 Christ has dominion over your sin. He has won the battle with sin so that you can live for Him. Even the world, Paul says, this sinful, broken world, Paul says, has been crucified to you and you to the world. Galatians 6.14. The world has no ultimate sway in your life anymore. So make your boast in Christ every day and tell the old self to shut his trap and walk in the newness of life. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's done. They have crucified the flesh. Why? Because they belong to Christ. The work is already done for you. Jesus' death freed you from bondage to the world so that you might risk everything for Him. Now walk in it by denying yourself and renouncing your former ways. And then also remember that you can take up your cross because Jesus took up His and then He rose again. When he rose, you rose with him. You can take up your cross because the one who took up the greatest cross in history lives within you by the Spirit. If he went through death and hell to reconcile you to God while you were his enemy, he will enable you to carry your cross to magnify God while you are his friend. Trust Him to give you everything you need in the cost of discipleship. Listen to one of the promises that He gives uh, Peter when He says, Hey, we left everything and followed you. What, what now? And Jesus tells him, There is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And more than that, Jesus promises to give us himself. When he says in Matthew 16, verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What he's saying is that we'll find it in him. We'll find our life in him. He will be everything to us. 
That's ultimately why giving up everything to follow Jesus in this life is worth it. It's worth it because He is worth it. Jesus is like that treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Taking up your cross is just like this man. You give up everything you have to follow Jesus, and it may even hurt for a little while, but in the end, you have the treasure. Jesus. If you don't give up everything, you have all you'll ever get right now, and then you're going to lose it on the last day. But if you give up everything for Christ's sake, you'll get more than you'll ever be able to contain, both now and for eternity. You get Jesus, who is infinitely glorious. You have an eternity of riches. You have the kingdom of peace. You have the inheritance of the earth, Romans 8 says. What is 80 years of denying yourself and taking up your cross, suffering for others in the path of love when you gain 10 bazillion in Jesus' glorious presence? Nothing else can compare. And there are people who have walked this road before us, like the Christians in Hebrews chapter 10. It says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better possession in Christ and an abiding one. Or like the martyr Jim Elliot who, who leaves us with these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or like David Livingston after years of hardship in Africa says... I never made a sacrifice. In other words, in comparison to the reward he gets in Christ, he never made a sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth it. Give yourself to him. Take up your cross daily. Lose your life to see others saved and bring glory to God. He is worth it.